0: We are continuing on in our series, the First Peter series. We call it Living as Exiles. We've taken a detour um, a couple of times, but we are back in to, uh, to First Peter. Let me just quickly highlight as you're turning there uh, or flipping there on your phone, whichever one you're doing, um, let me just quickly highlight our prayer and Bible study that will be happening on Wednesday. Uh, we get in here at 7 o'clock on the dot and we're on our knees. Most of us are on our knees. If, if you can do so, we, we try to create the atmosphere to where it's really corporate prayer and everyone's just praying to the Lord. And we do that for a half an hour. And then 730, we move into a small time of worship and then we move into Bible study and we take it very, very serious. As Timmy said, this is an opportunity that's way more intimate than this setting, that it can be some back and forth dialogue Um, And so if you guys aren't doing anything on Wednesday, we ask that you would press to come out. Timmy is actually teaching Bible study on on Wednesday. So you guys come out and support Timmy. All right. First Peter, uh, chapter two. Uh, This morning, we've, we've really reached a milestone, if you will. So we've been going through all of first Peter. There's five chapters in first Peter. We are in chapter two. And one of the things we've tried to do as a church is tried to be as consistent as possible and going as slowly as possible uh, so that we're grabbing all of the nutrients that are in to this book of first Peter. And whenever you go slowly through a book, typically what happens is there's exhaustion that kicks in. And so what we like to do is celebrate when we finish an accomplishment, like finishing a chapter. So we're actually finishing chapter two today, which is a big deal because we've been in the book for several several months, but don't check out after chapter two. There's three more chapters, and there is a lot that Peter is going to continue to cover. In fact, the next time we are back into this word, we will be uh, talking about wives and husbands, which is where Peter just is going to lead us. But if I'm honest, man, because it's family and friends day, I contemplated not doing first Peter today. And the reason I contemplated not doing first Peter is because Peter's actually really, really heavy in the text that he's going to give us today. Not only is he heavy, but he presents to us pills that are very, very hard to swallow. And so I said, man, this family and friends day is a beautiful day. I looked at the weather. I saw the sunshine and I said, man, I don't want to talk to people about suffering. And that is exactly what Peter is talking about today. But, um, you know, one of the things I did, or at least I started to communicate to you guys is the importance of making sure we don't skip over any part of the Bible. So when we say we're going through first Peter, we go through every verse. And so whatever is presented in front of us is what we want to deal with and so I, I said, man, let me not be a punk and, and, and punk out, but let's deal with what Peter is saying. I actually had a professor when I was in school, um, Bible college in Philadelphia, that told me, uh, flat out said it this way. He said, man, if you're going to be a punk, at least be a punk behind the text. And I said, I get it. So that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to hide myself behind Peter's words and allow Peter to preach to us this morning. Why don't you guys go ahead and pick me up in verse number 18? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, says this. Servants, in the original language, it's slaves. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it? You endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, circle this word, an example. We need to define that so that we might follow in his footsteps. This is talking about Jesus. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten to be I'm sorry, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Last verse, for you were string like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I literally want to preach from a one word topic today, and that is suffering. You should look at your neighbor and say, on Family and Friends Day, the pastor wants to preach on suffering. Let us pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your faithfulness and your kindness to us. I think I speak on behalf of the entire room when I say we do not like suffering. We understand it. If, if, if we're mature Christians, we understand its, its role in our sanctification or our spiritual growth. But nevertheless, we do not like seasons of suffering. We don't even like to see our friends suffer. We don't like to see our family members suffer, let alone ourselves suffer. But Lord, I pray today that as Peter comforted this suffering group of believers years, 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 centuries ago, I pray that the same comfort he provided to them would be given to us today. Pray that the word of God would really pierce down into our hearts, and I pray that we would leave out with a different perspective of what suffering is. Typically, when we're in suffering, we are looking for a way out. We are looking for a way to escape the feeling of being suffered or or suffering or the feeling of being persecuted. But I pray today that our first reaction wouldn't be to get out, but our first reaction would be to see how you can get the glory out of it. Not unto us, not unto us, but unto you get the glory And I pray that today that the word of God would really challenge us today with our perception of suffering. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Suffering is what we're going to talk about today. During the early part of the 1900s, the Soviet Union uh, desired to stamp out all of Christianity. So they they went on this big journey to say, man, you know what? Here in Russia... Everybody that's a Christian, we will stamp them out. And they were so serious about this that they created this group called the League of Militants, the League of Militants. And it's really called the League of Militant Godless. And so really what the, that group is supposed to do is they're supposed to persecute followers of Jesus in such a way that they would denounce Jesus and nobody else would follow Jesus. And that was the goal of the League of Militant Godless. But after years and years and years of trying to stamp out all of Christianity, the leader of the League of Militant Godless is quoted as saying, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. Listen to me. Suffering has never been a useful tool to stop Christianity. In fact, to the contrary, suffering has often made Christianity flourish. Look at places like Acts chapter seven with the stoning of Stephen Stephen, a believer, a devout believer of Jesus Christ, is stoned at the end of chapter seven in in the book of Acts. And by the time you get to the very first part of Acts chapter eight, the Bible says that the persecution amongst the believers was so great that they all begin to scatter. But watch how glorious God's grace is in the midst of them scattering. The first part of Acts chapter eight tells us that those who scattered went about preaching the word. So what caused the gospel to spread was not prosperity and peace. What caused the gospel to spread was suffering. What caused the gospel to flourish in the early church was persecution. Yet again, once we get into hard times, we're looking for a way out. Christianity is like a tea bag. It only works best when you dip it in hot water. You ever try to dip a teabag in cold water? Not the cold ones. I'm talking about the the original teabags. You ever try to dip it in some cold water? It really doesn't do anything. But you get to see the true colors come out of the leaves inside of that teabag when it's dipped in hot water. And that is what Christianity is like. And one of the things we do is we say, I get it. Christianity as a whole should suffer. But it's been my experience that the same that is true for Christianity suffering it's true for you as an individual that believe in Jesus. Just as Christianity flourishes under suffering, you flourish under suffering. Again, I know you're like, listen, I brought my family. I brought my friends here today. You know, it's, I wanted a nice, encouraging message. I want us to go outside, eat some ice cream and walk out and just be real encouraged. But the reality is you should be encouraged by the fact that God allows you to suffer. I know you're like, no, that's not, that's not grace." The text tells us it's a glorious thing. That's what the text says. Not once, but twice it says it. So in our text this morning, Peter's really going to challenge us. He's going to challenge us on what our view and our perception is of suffering. Pick me back up in verse number 18. For our family and friends, how we do it is we literally go verse by verse. And so we'll read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit. Verse 18 says, servants, again, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Let me lift back up that first part. Slaves, be servant. Be subject to your masters with all respects. Can I lay my cards on the table this morning? I do not like this verse. I'm just telling you right now. I know y'all like, listen, I like every verse in the Bible. No verses challenge me. But if I'm honest with you, you know, one of the ways I've learned to read and understand the Bible is to be aware that I typically am bringing my own cultural view into the text. This, like don't disconnect yourself from that. Like I'm a black man. I'm not, I'm, Psalms 139 will affirm that I am fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Nevertheless, my experience of what slavery is and what slavery has done to my ancestors often makes me read verses like this and say, what in the world is he talking about? And if you do not understand what Peter is talking about, this verse can, can almost feel like a, a, a burden and a weight on you. Can I tell you how, how deep this verse goes? Because if I'm honest, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I struggle with this text. When I said I was going to preach something else, it's because I couldn't get past verse 18. Servants, be subject to your master. Let me tell you how... How deep this verse goes. One of my favorite historical figures is a guy named Howard Thurman, Howard Washington Thurman. He was um, a a philosopher, an author, a theologian, African-American man. He also was the dean of chapel of Howard University. He also was somebody here from Howard. I hear you now. He was also the, the dean of chapel at. Um, at Boston University in the, in the, 50, in the 50, 1950s and the 1960s. Do you realize how big of a deal that is during that time? Well, his grandmother was a slave. She was freed later on in life, but earlier on, she grew up as a slave. And growing up as, as a slave, she didn't have the opportunity to learn how to read. She didn't have the opportunity to learn how to write. And so what Howard Thurman would do is whenever he went to visit his grandmother, he would simply read the Bible to her. And she would say, baby, you can read any verse. She was a Christian. You can read any chapter to me, any verse. I love the prophets. So read to me Isaiah. I love the Psalms. Read to me the Psalms. I love the Gospels. Read to me the Gospels. But she would often say, don't read to me anything from Paul or Peter. This is how deep this verse goes. She literally blotted out verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 2 based on the misuse of this text, the way she was taught it. She would say, you know, her, Howard Thurman one time built up enough courage to ask her, you know, I'm reading these texts to you. Why don't you allow me to read the epistles? Why can't I read Peter to you? And she would often say, well, you can't read that to me because when I was a slave, The the plantation master would have white preachers come in and preach from this very verse and misuse it in a way to make me feel like my slavery is actually God ordained. These preachers would come in and they would take verses like this and misuse them to enslave millions of African-Americans. So when I come to texts like this, if I don't properly understand slaves submitting to masters, I will read verses like this and conclude in my mind, God, are you for slavery? But unfortunately, we've misused that. Here's what I know there's a huge, huge, huge difference between slavery in America, the Western world slavery, and slavery during Rome. Completely different. Let me tell you how different it was. You know, one of the differences is on, is on uh, permanency. So, in other words, African Americans were enslaved. Typically, for a lifetime, you were born into slave a sla- a slavery, and you died a slave. So there was no way out of being a slave. And the small parts of getting out were were I mean they were hard to get to to be a free slave. And so slavery was for a lifetime. In the Roman era, slavery you were only a slave until like thirty, and some people got out of slavery earlier than that. The second reason, the second difference that we find is that the the, the Is the idea of race or identity. So in America, we were enslaved because of ethnicity. You were enslaved if you were a black person. However, in in the Greco-Roman era, you weren't enslaved because of ethnicity. You were enslaved if another nation conquered your nation. So Rome, with their massive army, they ruled all of the known world from England to India. This massive army, once they conquered your nation, you were first a prisoner and then you were a slave. But here's what I know. In American slavery, we weren't allowed to read and we weren't allowed to write. But in Rome, these, the, the ones that were enslaved were former doctors, were former lawyers, they were business people. They were able to read and write, and that's why we have a letter being sent to them. Because they're able to read the letter. And so there's a huge difference between slavery as we know it in America, don't feed that into the text. Like, let's just call it out. Slavery as America as as we've had it in America was sinful. But if you look at our text and, and you look at the difference between slavery and Rome during the first century and slavery in America, they are two. Totally different. But here's what's the same. Slaves or servants had no value in society in America. Or if you look at slavery in Rome during this time that Peter's writing it, there were over 60 million slaves at the time. Peter wrote this and none of them had any value. But pick up what Peter is doing in our text this morning. The fact that Peter is writing this portion of scripture and addressing slaves really is bestowing on them dignity and bestowing on them value. The fact that he is writing to them and addressing them in any type of manner, the first century church was the only place in that culture where slaves were considered equals with everybody else. In the church, which also makes it very hard for me when I look at how we deal with um, injustice and how we deal with um, what, what we would call system, uh, systemic racism, how we deal with it as a church, hurts my heart. Why? Because look at what Peter's doing. Peter's bestowing on them value. He's saying you are a human, he's saying you are valued, you are loved just by the simple fact that I am writing this portion. Of scripture to you. And so, what we can't do is we can't see, and I don't want to make this political, but we cannot see videos of a man named Philando Castillo be shot in a car with his child in the back seat and his girlfriend in the front seat and then watch the officer get acquitted and say, it's okay. No, we must do something about that. Why? Because Peter is writing to people who have no dignity, no value. You know that every single person, whether you believed in Jesus Christ or not, is made in the image of God. Genesis one, you are what's called the imago day. You are made in God's image. That means whether you're a believer or not, your life has value. We have to be serious about that. So Peter is writing. But this text, I know you're sitting there saying, "Okay, what does a text on slaves submitting to masters have to do with me? today in 2017. I'm not a slave. What does that have to do with me? When I wake up in the morning, how can I apply this text? This text has a lot to do with you. Can I tell you why it has a lot to do with you? It can be summed up in one word, mistreatment. What Peter is showing us and the text is showing us fundamentally fundamentally is showing us how to handle people who have mistreated you, who have positions of authority over you. That's what the text is showing us. Because the only time he mentions uh, slaves submitting to masters is in verse 18. The rest of it, he's going to get to the cross. And so what he's saying is, how do we in this room handle people that have misused their authority and abused us? Let me make this practical. Maybe it's a boss that doesn't like you. Maybe it's it's, it's a parent that doesn't understand you. Maybe it's a, a pastor, a former pastor, or a current one. Forgive me, Lord. Maybe it's a pastor that has misused his authority over you. Well, guess what? The text tells us today how we are supposed to deal with that. Now, what the text doesn't say is the text is not telling us that you should endure um, injustice or mistreatment. Like, you know what they didn't have in Peter's day? They didn't have HR departments. You got an HR department. So if you are being abused on your job, you should take legal action against it. You should go to the H.R. department. So I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, let's slow down and see the lesson that we can learn in slavery. I mean, I'm sorry, in misjudgment. I mean, mistreatment. And God, I'm all over the place this morning. <laughs> see how we can slow down and, and, and really focus in on how do we endure suffering from people that are in positions of authority. Let's get back in the text. Verse 18. Pick up one word that's used twice between verse 18 and verse 19. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Remember that word. For This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. He uses the word unjust twice. When he wants to present to us suffering, the first thing he shows us is that just because you're suffering, it doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. Do you notice that he uses the word unjust two times? He says he was he, he says unjust in verse 18 and then verse 19. He says it again unjustly. And so what he's saying is the, the servant hasn't done anything wrong in this text. Who's done wrong is the boss. So how in the world do we operate in life when we've done nothing? Can I put some Bible stories to someone working underneath someone else that is misusing them and mistreating them? Look at places like Genesis chapter 29, where you don't have to turn there, but it's a story of Jacob and Laban, and Jacob works for Laban, and he he has two daughters. He has one daughter named Rachel, which is supposed to be drop-dead gorgeous and beautiful, and then there's a daughter he has, I love the way the text puts this, that's weak on the eyes. (laughs) That's what the text says. Like, I'm gonna start saying that to people. I'm be like, you're not ugly, you're just weak on the eyes. That's what the text says. So the Bible says that Rachel was beautiful and that Leah was weak on the eyes, aka Leah didn't just look that good. And so Jacob sees Rachel, falls deeply in love with her, goes to Laban and says, I will work for you for seven years. You know she looks good. <laughs> for seven years I'll work for you. So he works for him for seven years. At the end of the seven years, on the wedding night, I don't know if the veil was thick and the veil was tight, <laughs> but on the wedding night, Laban tricks Jacob. And so instead of presenting to him after this marriage, after this ceremony, instead of presenting to him the one he loved, Rachel, the one that they have both made a vow that he was going to have, he gives to him the one that's weak on the eyes. He gives to him Leah. And he sees her and he's upset about it. He goes back to Laban and says, you know what? I'm really upset about that. And this is how you know she look good. I'll work another seven years for you. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't know. He works another 14 years he works to get Rachel. He finally gets her. And typically we stop there in the text. But the text goes on to say he works another seven years, 21 years. And the next seven years he works, the, the Bible says at the end of that 21 years, that he was cheated out of wages by Laban 10 times. And so what you have is a a servant named Jacob that has done nothing wrong to Laban, yet the boss misused him over and over and over again. Because I know you're in this room, you're like, my boss just has it out on me. They just don't like me. The reality is men and women have suffered under bad bosses for years. Now, just, don't just look at this one, but fast forward a look, little bit and look at Joseph and, and Potiphar. Joseph served Potiphar faithfully, served him faithfully. And, and, and one day, Potiphar left the house and he went away on a trip. And when he went away on the trip, his wife, Potiphar's wife, looked at Joseph and wanted him. The Bible says that she grabbed him and said, lay with me. And he was like, you know, a godly man, I can't do that. Bible says that he flees. First of all, brothers, let me just tell you. <laughs> That's a good verse right there. In the midst of sin, you ain't got to contemplate. You ain't got to text your boy, should I, should I not? The Bible says he fleed. And in the midst of him fleeing, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife grabs his cloak. And then she takes it to her husband because he didn't sleep with her. She takes it to the husband and says, Joseph tried to rape me. She screams rape. And he is, he is lied on. Potiphar is upset about it and puts him into jail. Again, served Potiphar Faithfully unjust. There's more. I mean, look at David and Saul. David served Saul faithfully. And Saul tried to kill him on multiple, multiple occasions. So, what you see is listen, just because you are going through and just because you're suffering doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. The three men I just named did nothing wrong. In fact, they served more faithfully than we serve bosses. But yet they were misused and they were mistreated. So your sickness doesn't mean God is mad at you. Let's put it practical. Your your financial difficulty doesn't mean God is trying to get back at you. You might be under some type of suffering and persecution just because you're faithful. We never consider that. So he says it twice in this text. He says, unjust. And then he says it again in verse 19. Unjustly. Your suffering might be the tool that God uses not only to sanctify you, but to bring him glory. You shine best. And the text is going to show us that we shine best under persecution. And so the Bible says it twice. You're suffering. You're suffering, but it's unjust. It's unjust. You've done nothing wrong. Nothing in the text leads me to believe that the servant did anything wrong. Pick me back up in verse number 20. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. Underline this phrase. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He actually says that twice. I kind of read over it really quickly, but he says it in verse number 19. For this is a gracious thing. He starts and then he ends in verse number 20 saying the same thing. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing. What is a gracious thing? If you do good and you suffer for it, that's a hard pill to swallow. Understand what Peter is saying. When you do good and you suffer for doing good, it's a gracious thing. We don't feel like it's a gracious thing. We don't think it's a gracious thing, but yet Peter shows us it is a gracious thing. Why does he show us it's a gracious thing? Because it it gives you an opportunity to shine bright for Jesus. Let me just tell you, prosperity and peace doesn't... That's why I don't like the prosperity gospel. That's why right there. Because the prosperity gospel will say that God wants everybody healthy and he wants everybody wealthy. And as long as you've got enough faith, then you can be healthy and you can be well. But the truth is, no, he wants some of you broken suffering. We don't, we don't like that, though. We want to be in the category that's rich and healthy. But sometimes you shine bright and, and you shine more under persecution. When I was a kid, I was growing up in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And I had a friend that came over. And he brought these little things. And I didn't know what they were. They looked like little plastic things with liquid inside of them. Now I know that they're glow sticks, but at that time, I didn't know what a glow stick was. I was a young boy, so he brought him over, and he said, man, these things are supposed to glow in the dark. So I'm like, oh, man, that's cool. Let's check it out. So we waited for the sun to set, went across the street to the basketball court, and we stood there while the sun was going down, and we were looking at these plastic things and trying to wait for them to illuminate, trying to wait for them to light up. They never lit up. We were shaking them. They didn't light up. We were going to the dark places and trying to put our hand over them to see if they would glow. Remember, they were neon green and orange and yellow. They never lit up. And then finally, my friend got upset. He was like, man, these things are cheap, and he cracks it. And when he cracks it, he bends it, the capsule inside breaks, and it illuminates. So we're like, oh, that's how you get it to light up. You got to bend it. Y'all remember those things? You got to bend it. You hear that little snap. That's the capsule letting the chemicals go. And then it illuminates. That is what Christianity is like. You in this room, the Lord, you will not light up and glow and shine for Jesus Christ in the midst of peace and prosperity. I sat there with that thing and watched it. It would not glow. You know when it glowed? When I bent it. And some of you in this room, that is the story of your life. You will not shine for Jesus when things are going well. But when you are bent and when you are broken, that is when you will shine for Jesus Christ. And so Peter says it here. He says, listen, man, I know you've done nothing wrong, but suffering produces some type of salt and light into the world. It's important for us to see what am I supposed to do? Pastor, I get it. I get it. I understand the purpose that there is purpose in suffering. I understand that I have done nothing wrong to receive this type of suffering. What am I supposed to do? You know what the text tells us? It began in verse 18 by saying two words, be subject, be subject to the process. In fact, it's the same word, be subject, that he used when we talked about a couple of weeks ago, being subject to the emperor. It's the same word. He's telling us in order to submit your life to Jesus, we must come under the influence, come under the control Of the process of the suffering we don't want to go through the process peter says be subject to it it's almost you know when we're in suffering we we almost feel like like god has a knife and he's stabbing us in reality he's not stabbing you he really has like a scalpel and he's performing surgery on your life and it doesn't feel good but just like in a natural surgery the success of a surgery typically shows us how successful it is by how much you operate. I mean, how much you are under the influence and sedated. That's a good surgery. No one on the operation table will fight and push and have a successful surgery. No, they're gonna put some drugs in you and knock you out. I watched a Facebook video of a, of a young man that was, he was so overwhelmed by this outpatient surgery. It was just a procedure. And he was so overwhelmed and nervous about it that he began to fight the nurse. And he began to fight the doctor to the point where they had to put him under. They had to sedate him. He was supposed to be awake for this procedure. He could not be awake for the procedure because he was fighting. And anybody in this room that has ever had an operation, it typically goes well when you are still. It says, be subject. God does not have a knife. And the thing I love about our God is he is a great physician that has never been sued for malpractice. He's a great God that has never lost a patient. He has a scalpel, not a knife. So he is not trying to kill you. He is simply trying to trying to get late. Let the process be the process. Submit to the process and the people that God has used to bring the suffering in your life. That's hard. I got friends that have done me wrong. I have bosses that have done me wrong. I have family members that have done me wrong. Hopefully it's not your family and friends you bought today. <laughs> but I got family members that have done me wrong. Peter tells us, be subject. And then he uses words like, it's a glorious thing. It's a gracious thing. It's hard for us to swallow. And a pastor, I get it, but I need an example. I need an example of somebody that suffered unjustly and was innocent. They weren't wrong in, their, in any of their actions, but yet they suffered and they were subject. They were subject to the process of suffering. Give me one example. Peter's going to give it to us in verse number 21. He says in verse 21, for this, you have been called because here's our example. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Man, I wish I had something deeper for you today. I have nothing deeper than to say in the midst of suffering, look to Jesus. I know it's simple. I know y'all like I came from more than that today. That is what Peter gives us this morning. In the midst of your suffering, let us look to the greatest example of a man that suffered. Like, you do realize, like, Jesus was sinless. The fact, the next verse is going to tell us that he was sinless. And yet, he suffered. This word be exam- uh, this word here, example, is a great word for us. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It's called hypogrammos. Hypogramos. And this idea of hypogrammos is the idea that ancients, during ancient times, this is the way they taught their kids how to write. And so the mom would sit down and she would trace out a letter. She would write out a letter. She'd put the paper on the table. A kid would take the paper, put it on top of mom's drawing, and he would draw the same letters. That is where we get our word example from. Example really meant that is how they taught their kids how to write. And so what Peter is saying by using this term, "hypogrammos," what Peter is showing us this morning is in the midst of suffering, it's almost like those bracelets. Y'all remember those WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do? Peter is telling us this morning, look to Jesus and see what Jesus did during suffering. He's our perfect example of what it looks like to suffer and not do anything wrong. So he says, look to Jesus. Example. He's our example. He's our example. Always look to Jesus. What we want to do is look to each other. We want to look to the person that's done us wrong. But Peter says, no. No look to Jesus. The question that you should be asking is, how did Jesus suffer? I get it. I understand the cross, but how did he suffer? I quickly want to read to you, and I've read it before. If you're taking notes, take notes of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 records, I love this, it really highlights the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, it highlights how Jesus suffered and what he did during suffering. Look at what it says in verse number three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse six. We all like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. Here's what he did. Verse seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shear. It says it again. He opened not his mouth. How did Jesus suffer? Jesus suffered without a hint of vengeance in his body. He suffered not even trying to get back at the person that was doing him wrong. Like Consider Jesus suffering, though. Jesus, could, he suffered under people that he created. The Bible says that they pulled the very beard out of his face. They struck him in his face and said, prophesy to us which one of us hit you. Like Jesus could have prophesied which one hit him. Not only that, but he could have said, I created the hand you just hit me with. Jesus had nails driven into his hands, had nails driven into his feet. All of his joints were dislocated because of the cross. He would have had to lift up in order to breathe because his lungs were filling up with blood and mucus. That's what crucifixion was. Yet the text tells me in Isaiah 53 that he opened not his mouth. Yet what do we do? The moment you do me wrong, I'm opening my mouth. (laughs) The moment you do me wrong, I'm going on Facebook and I'm putting you on blast. But look at what the text tells us. Now, if Jesus suffered like that and Peter is saying, look to Jesus as our hypogramos, look to him as our example. Why in the world do we not look to him? Why do we talk so much during suffering? When Jesus, the Bible says he opened, not his mouth. It doesn't say it one time. It says it multiple times. May Christ be your example in this room of suffering. Some of you in here right now have walked in and God knows you've got some serious suffering going on. You have serious weight that you are dealing with right now. And I don't know if it's a sickness. I don't know if you are dealing with like bad relationships. Whatever you are dealing with, Peter tells us this morning, look to Jesus. He's our perfect example. Let's continue on with the text. Get back to first Peter. Where am I at? Verse 22. I'm going to read 21 into 22. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Here's how sinless he was. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This verse really is showing us the innocence of Jesus. Why does Peter decide to show us the innocence of Jesus while talking about suffering? The reason he shows us the innocence of Jesus is because all of us in this room, when we're suffering, the first thing we want to say is, but I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I suffering? I'm good. I did nothing wrong. No, Jesus was good. And look at what happened to him. The cross, the Bible says, not even deceit was found in Jesus mouth. And one of the questions we often ask when we're going through, or we see somebody else going through is why do bad things happen to good people? When in reality, that question in and of itself has the assumption that there are good people. There are no good people. Bad things happening to good people only happen one time in in the history of the universe. And that is on the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the only one that is good. He's the only one that is perfect. We're all tainted with sin. The question we should be asking those of us who have received the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. The question we should be asking is why does good things happen to bad people? That's the question you should be asking. That is what salvation is. Salvation is something good happening to somebody that doesn't deserve it. Jesus in our text says that he was you no know, deceit was found in his mouth. It's, it's basically saying that he was sinless. Yet he goes to a cross and he does not go to the cross for his own sake, but he goes to the cross for you and I. Let's continue in the text. Verse number 23. And he was reviled. And he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, I love this word, entrusting himself to the judges who judged justly. And basically what he's saying is entrusting yourself really is the term that they would use when a criminal was apprehended. It means to come under the custody of the the government. And so really what you're seeing is Jesus entrusting himself, even though he didn't have to. Like you don't realize Jesus could have called down angel after angel after angel and like swooped him right up to heaven. He could have called down angels to fight on his behalf. Again, Isaiah 53, yet he opens not his mouth. He suffers for you and I. And then the next text is going to tell us that, that he's able to suffer for you and I and trust yourself to the one who judges justly. We don't entrust, you know what we entrust ourselves to? Our emotions. We entrust ourselves to our own responses. Earlier this week, I was driving my son to school, my youngest son. And as I was driving him to school, Uh, Ty was in the front seat. My youngest son was in the back seat. The traffic was heavy. And so I I pulled out my phone briefly to to pull up another route on Google Maps. And when I pulled out my phone, the bus driver next to me, I mean, he just went crazy. He opened the window. He started beeping. He started yelling at me out the window, put down the phone, stop texting. Like he was embarrassing me. You got a kid in the back seat. Like he was like, he was going, so I ignored him. I didn't say anything. I'm entrusting myself to the Lord. So I'm driving and I continue to go, But then it almost felt like he was stalking me. Four, five, six blocks. He's beeping every time we're at the light. And so finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I rolled down the window, and I started yelling back, mind your own business. And I started going off on him to the point where Ty was like, calm down. And and let me just tell you, Ty telling me to calm down is a big deal, because she got some road rage. She's not here, so I can say it today. Don't y'all tell her I said that. So for her telling me to calm down means I was really out of pocket. I missed the opportunity. To entrust myself to God, and that's what we do. Yeah, I lift that illustration this morning, just to simply say, we do that not just in driving, but we do that with everything. We never entrust ourselves to God. We entrust ourselves to our own anger and our own um, our, our own responses. Let's continue to get through this. Verse twenty-four. I love verse twenty-four because verse twenty-four again, Peter does something well. Peter often quotes the Old Testament. We've seen that numerous times through chapter 1 and chapter 2. We saw him quote in chapter 1, Leviticus eleven forty-four. He quoted Isaiah 40. He quoted Psalms 34 earlier. And he's going to quote Psalms 34 again later. And in this verse, he's quoting Isaiah 53, which we just read. He's quoting the end of that chapter, the last verse in Isaiah 53. Look at what he says in verse 24. He himself, talking about Christ... Bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. The one thing you need to pick up when you read verse 24, when it says Jesus bore our sins, it shows us how we should suffer. Why? Because Jesus didn't suffer for his own his own sake. Jesus suffered for somebody else. Here's the question on the table for you: Who have you suffered for? Who have you allowed your, ex- your life experience, your suffering, to be a blessing to somebody else? You know that your suffering could be a testimony to help somebody else? The cross of Jesus Christ says that Jesus bore our sins. It's important that he bears our sins because if he doesn't bear our sins, then you and I have to bear our sins. But Jesus, on the cross, over 2,000 years ago, bears your sin, like your sin, That sin, yes, that one, he bore it on the cross. And he did it not for himself, but he did it for somebody else. I'm told of a story of a young boy who was severely allergic to bees, severely allergic. Like if he got stung by a bee, it would would be lethal. So he's in the backyard with his father. And his father is cleaning up the backyard. And a bee comes into the backyard. And the boy sees the bee. And he panics. And he's fearful. And he's nervous about this bee. But the father is calm. Father never even, he never says, get inside. He doesn't try to swat off the bee. He just watches the son. The son's running around. And he's nervous and he's, and he's anxious and he's scared because if he gets stung, he could die. And so finally the boy confused and baffled to why Jesus, I mean, to why the father is not saying something to this son. And so the son says to the father, why are you not worried? Why are you not concerned? The father replies, because that bee, I'm not worried about it because he already stung your brother. And so his stinger is already gone. When the Bible says that Jesus bore our sins, there is no sting in death because Jesus already bore it for you. <laughs> Jesus is the big brother that got stung on your behalf. And you and I get to walk free, considering the fact that you and I in this room are the ones that needed to be on the cross. Yeah, Jesus goes to a cross. First Corinthians 15 verse 56 says it this way. Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus bore your sins. And so Peter shows us, listen, while you're in the midst of suffering, consider that Jesus suffered not for his own sake, but for your sake. That's an example I can entrust myself to. Let's finish it here. Verse 25. Here's why else we can entrust ourselves to the process of suffering. Verse 25 says you for you were straying like sheep. But but have now returned. Look at this language to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This verse is basically saying God cares for you because that's what a shepherd does for the sheep. Remember last week we talked about the prodigal son. But within the prodigal son, if you go back a couple of parables before in Luke 15, what you'll see is the parable of the lost sheep. You'll see how far God goes to care for a sheep. And shepherds often would have to protect the sheep and put themselves into harm's way, put themselves into dangerous situations in order to protect the sheep. But the text tells us that Jesus Christ is our shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And so you and I in this room that have that have are going through suffering that are in the midst of persecution entrust yourself to God because he cares for you, because he protects you. Because he's he he's concerned about your your hardship. He's not like up in heaven going, oh, my God, like he's not confused to why you're going through. He's looking and he's caring for you in the midst of go through. We never look at our our go through as him caring for us. But he absolutely does care for us. Here's what I know. Somebody in this room walked into this room with all types of issues. You got, I mean, you got burdens, you got situations, and I don't want to dilute it. I don't want to say, listen, it's not that bad. No, it's probably painful. But the reality is Peter shows us this morning to look to Jesus who suffered. Like nobody in this room suffered more than Jesus. Can we just be honest? Like unless you were crucified and came back, nobody in this room suffered more than Jesus. But he is our great example. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for this word, because many of us in this room, we've had faulty perspectives of what it looks like to entrust ourselves to the process of of sanctification through suffering. We have bad theology when it comes to suffering. We want to rush out. Lord, I do pray that you would help us in our situations. I don't pray that you would get us out too quickly. I pray that you would accomplish exactly what you desire to accomplish in putting the weight on us. And if it's not been accomplished, this is hard. But Lord, I pray that you would turn it up like tea bags. You would turn up the heat in our lives. I know many people are like, I didn't come today for family and friends to hear that. You say turn up the heat. But the reality is, Father, you use suffering. You use hardship as a way to sanctify us, but also to bring you glory. Let us be that glow stick in the midst of a dark world. Help us to shine given us examples and after examples of what it looks like to entrust ourselves to the process of submitting to hardship you've shown us but at the same time lord it's not easy so i do pray for every individual in this room that walked in with some type of issue pray lord for them and i pray that they would see at the end of this thing a great testimony a testimony as verse number 24 says that you bore our sins a testimony to which will show somebody else that going through the exact same thing we're going through, it will show them how to get out. Help us to be more sacrificial. In suffering, Father, we are extremely selfish. Help us to be more sacrificial, even in the midst of suffering. May our lives be a great example for somebody else. Why? Because Jesus is our great example. So Father, I thank you for this word. Pray that we would hide in our hearts. Pray that we would walk out And remember it as soon as we get into a trial. Because reality is everybody in this room is going to get into one. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. At the end of verse 24, it says that we might live to righteousness. Help us to walk out of here and be living epistles of what the cross has done in our life. Pray that we would get around our friends that do not believe, that do not know you, that have not trusted you. And that they would see something different in our lives. But I I don't just pray that they would see something different. But I pray that they would hear something different. That they would hear the gospel. That there is no way you can work your way to salvation. But Jesus has accomplished it on his cross. The text says he bore our sins. The wrath of God was fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. So, Father, as we end our service, Lord, let that message ring in our hearts and let it move from our hearts to our head and our head to our mouth and our mouth to our feet. And let all of our lives be gospel centered, focused on Christ. So in the midst of suffering, Lord, we might walk out of here and walk smack dead into an issue. Help us to remember this text. Help us to remember that you are our great example. And we thank you, O oh God, that you didn't leave us exampleless, that you gave us a great model to follow after. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now